I mean, those are the kinds of twists, like Jessica said, those are the kinds of twists I like to read as well. Like if the twist can connect to a larger theme or message of the book, those are always the most satisfying to me. The ones that I am less satisfied with are when you find out that the character was a sociopath and lying the entire time. That to me is surprising, but less interesting. Hey there, welcome back to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor who is passionate about helping you not only write the best manuscript, but also find the best fit and advocate for your story. I'm really excited about today's episode. Today, I have the privilege of sharing a first chapter deep dive analysis alongside a phenomenal author-editor duo. The book we're going to look at today is Counterfeit, a compelling crime novel released in June of 2022, and it was also a Reese Witherspoon book club pick, a New York Times editor's choice, and received several other accolades. What makes today even more exciting is that the duo I have the privilege of studying Counterfeit with is none other than the story's author, Kirsten Chen, and her editor, Jessica Williams. Kirsten Chen is the New York Times bestselling author of three novels. Her latest, Counterfeit, which we're going to study today, has sold the translation rights in seven languages and television rights have been optioned by Sony Pictures. Her previous two novels are Bury What We Cannot Take and Soy Sauce for Beginners. Kirsten was born and raised in Singapore and currently lives in New York City. She holds an MFA from Emerson College and a BA from Stanford University. Kirsten's editor, Jessica Williams, is an editor at William Morrow, which is an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers. She edits a range of fiction and nonfiction projects and is most interested in upmarket literary fiction and narrative nonfiction memoir with cultural underpinnings. Before joining HarperCollins, Jessica completed a master's in comparative literature at Georgetown University, and she worked at a literary and scouting agency in New York. As with all of my first chapter analysis episodes on LitMensch, I will examine how the big picture and small picture work in this first chapter. By doing this, it's my hope that you will learn why the story is a great example of how to hook a reader with its first pages and be able to model something similar in your own manuscripts. Keep an eye out for the episode show notes if you want to learn more about Kirsten, Jessica, Counterfeit, or our analysis on its first pages. Now, let's get into today's analysis. Thank you, Kirsten and Jessica. I am so excited to have you here with me today. This is my first author-editor combo, and I have been chomping at the bit to get one of these combos on the podcast. For listeners, if you have been listening to the first chapter episodes, you're familiar with how I like to go about analyzing a first chapter. What we do is we always look at the big picture first and use Paula Munez's seven key first chapter questions from her book, The Writer's Guide to Beginnings. And then we zero in and look at the small picture and identify scene structure. I am so lucky because I get to do that with Kirsten and Jessica today. Before we do that, though, let's just go ahead and meet Kirsten and Jessica. Kirsten, this is your third book, I believe. This is Counterfeit and Counterfeit Wildly huge successful book for you. I'm so excited for you. It was a Reese Witherspoon book club pick. I got was lucky enough to attend the webinar that I saw. And I know that has a lot of other accolades. I'd like to you know, just say congratulations and thank you for being here. And Jessica, 
Williams is Kirsten's wonderful, wonderful editor. I'd love for everyone to get to know you a little bit more. Let's start with Kirsten. Kirsten, can you tell me about your author career and what brought you into inspiration for Counterfeit? Yes, sure. At this point, I've been doing it for many years. I don't want to go all the way back, maybe. But like you said, this is my third novel. My first novel was called Soy Sauce for Beginners. It was actually my MFA thesis that I worked and reworked and reworked and eventually published. And that is a very different novel. It's uh, set in contemporary Singapore. It's about a family business. And then for my second book, I did a completely different kind of book. I The second book was historical fiction set in 1950s China. And then with Counterfeit Again, it's been quite an, a big leap to a kind of crime novel set in contemporary San Francisco and Southern China. And I guess what I would just say is that, you know, at this point, I see how each of my books is a reaction to the one that came before it. And so, you know, when I was working on my last book, Bury What We Cannot Take, because it was historical, it required an incredible amount of research. <laughs> and one particularly grueling day, I turned to my partner and I said, the, the next book I write is going to require zero research. And it's going to be about the only topic I already know about, and that's designer handbags. And oh, that cool. was kind of the seed of Counterfeits. Fun to have all these different varieties of books that you're writing. So you've jumped genres, I bet. Yeah, yeah. And we can talk, I know you will talk about genre. I don't actually think that much about genre when I start a book, which is probably why I'm kind of all over the place. I love that you run with your inspiration. That's awesome. Jessica, do you mind telling us a little bit about your yeah, experience? Well, it's funny because I obviously, Kirsten and I have had a lot of conversations about her process and what she left out of that is she is that she ended up doing a ton of research for <laughs> So yes, my name is Jessica Williams. I started at HarperCollins as an editorial assistant in 2011. Before that, I went to graduate school for literature and I briefly worked at a literary agency, like an internship, you know, reading through their submissions slush pile. And then I also spent about a year working as a book scout before being an editorial assistant. And that's a role where you are essentially reading things that are on submission or about to be published for translation potential and for TV and film clients. Um, then when I started at HarperCollins in 2011, I sort of worked my way up to be editor about two and a half years after I started. And now I'm an executive editor there. That's quite a journey. And I'm so excited that you're there because it helps bring this great book into the world. So let's go ahead and move into the analysis of the first chapter. I do like to remind listeners who are writers out there that if you are going to query your book, it is absolutely essential that it's the best manuscript it can be, which means that all the chapters have to be quality, not just the first chapter. I know we concentrate a lot on the first chapter before we query because yes, of course, those are the first pages that someone reads. However, I do like to analyze first chapters because I think that if you can understand what makes a great first chapter, you can carry over those skill sets and what might need to be changed throughout the whole book. So sorry, can I just say one yeah, thing? Um, absolutely. Your whole manuscript should be in amazing shape. But even if it's like the first 50 pages to our first 100 pages, I've definitely bid on and tried to acquire or even acquired projects that really needed quite a bit of editorial work in, say, the second half. but got me in the first 50 pages or had an incredible first 100 pages because that amount of strong manuscript material will show the editor that you are capable of writing mm -hmm. at that level. And so then it's more a matter of just the editor then helping you to get the rest of the book to be operating at that potential. All the more reason why it's great that 
and eventually you get to work with an editor, right? So you have that team. Wonderful. Thank you for for adding that. I think that's wonderful for writers to hear. Okay. As we go into this, I will give a summary of what the first chapter is. And I personally analyze this as one scene, one chapter. We'll see if if, <laughs> if we disagree or, or agree on that. But I personally saw it as one scene, one chapter. So I did write a summary for the chapter as a whole. It starts with the first sentence. The first thing I noticed were the eyes. And the last sentence that I'm going to conclude with the end of the first chapter is, are the words, which is more than can be said for those Hollywood brats. That's where we're beginning and starting. And the summary I have is Ava Wong meets up with her old college roommate, Winnie Fang, after Winnie calls Ava following 20 years of silence. Over coffee, Ava learns that Winnie has a friend who needs a transplant, it's a liver transplant, and Winnie hopes Ava can get her husband to help her friend with this transplant. Ava is annoyed until her son, Henry, throws a tantrum and Winnie hands Henry a very fancy keychain or charm for Henry to play with while also singing to Henry, which calms him down. Later, Ava invites Winnie over and they catch up a little bit until Winnie ends up leaving. And Ava later realizes that the charm actually has Fendi on it, which makes (laughs) her panic a bit because that means that it's definitely super expensive. And after Winnie leaves, Ava looks up how much the charm cost and it is $600. She had previously considered purchasing Winnie, but after seeing $600, that is completely off the table. (laughs) All of this is really interesting because the first chapter is Ava retelling this to a detective. We can see that Ava's having a conversation with the detective, which creates this mystery of where's Winnie? And essentially the discussion is based on Ava's rekindling a friendship with Winnie and why she might've gotten into that friendship. There's some sense of, okay, something bigger is going on. But we enter the story through this relationship and the rekindling of this friendship. So that's where we are in the first chapter. To discuss it, let's tackle big picture first, and then we'll get into small picture and look at the scene structure. Sound good? Yeah, that was a great summary. All right. For the big picture, we do use Palomine's seven key questions. And the first one is focused on genre. The question is, what kind of story is it? I mean, it's obviously a crime novel, but the reason I'm I'm kind of smiling is because I said, kind of alluded to earlier, I don't really think about genre when I start a story. I don't read a lot of crime novels. When I wrote my last historical novel, I didn't read a lot of historical fiction either, but it's a crime novel. But, you know, I kind of approach storytelling the same way, regardless of what kind of story it is. How do I build a really complex character? How do I sustain, sustain tension over many pages? How do I build to a satisfying climax? And And so to me, genre is almost irrelevant. Jessica, you probably have a better answer. No, actually, I don't. (laughs) I am not someone who believes in very strict genre definitions. I think most of the books that I like are genre bending. I also like books that play with genre. And I think that's what Counterfeit is doing. Mm -hmm. In that, yes, there is a crime. But it's also a comic novel. It's a satire. It's a a drama about friendship. You know, it's a story about the American dream. There's so many different layers to this novel. But I do think part of the fun of it is that it's a crime caper. Yeah. And so in that first chapter, you don't know at first that Ava is talking to a detective. And then she directly addresses the detective. And that's sort of the cue to the reader. Wait, something has gone wrong here. And that's the first signal that it's a a crime story. I found that really interesting because it reminded me of Where'd You Go Bernadette and that we're following 
these files and you know, like eventually you're building up to discovery of like, where'd she go? Why did she go? Right. Mm -hmm. And with counterfeit, you know, I read it, of course, a few times and I started, what I loved about it is I kept picking up on more details the more times I read it. And that's what any great novel will, will do. You can pick up on more details as you read it. And there is that line at the very end where she kind of ticks off like that she's talking to a detective. And I was like, oh, okay, something is going to happen here. Was that something that originally was in the submission to you, Jessica? Or is that something that you and Kristen worked out together? No, that was there. The confessional element, I would say the first half, really, we didn't focus that much on the first half editorially. We did some sort of world building around Boss Mac and that sort of, you know, the, the crime ring in, in China and like building out some of the details of that. But for the most part, the first half was very much in place. And we did the most amount of editorial work on the second half. After the reveal. Do you find that common with most writers that you work with, that it's the second half? Oh, sometimes it's the opposite. And you're doing all your work on the first 100 pages. Because <laughs> it's like the first 200 pages are too slow. And then the writer just like, once the book takes off, it's amazing. And the ending's incredible. Then you're really focusing on, you know, engaging the reader, hooking them in in the first 100 pages. Or, I mean, there's no gentle rule. I would say sometimes it's the whole, maybe it's thinly drawn and you're working out, fleshing out the characters and fleshing out the world and laying the groundwork. Every book, I think, requires a different level of editorial care and focus. It's so interesting that both of you had the, the answer of when to be flexible with genre. When you look at it, because yes, Crime Keeper might be the hook in some way, but you could also probably call this up market right? Or, you know, book club fiction or all these other things. I feel like sometimes writers get really overwhelmed because they're trying to figure out what is the genre? Mm. <laughs> My puppy is squeaking outside the door. It's okay. <laughs> I always welcome puppy cameos. <laughs> she, she wants to be let in and she is squeaking her ball. <laughs> I have my boxer lab next to me. So if he sounds the alarm, he's just joining in. So. <laughs> Yeah. But I think that's really cool that you do have that flexibility with genre. And then it makes me think about, well, I mean, it's going to be a later question in the big questions, but character, because it does really go to the root of character and character carrying through stories. The second question is focusing on plot. I'd love to know, what do you think the story's central plot is really about and how is it introduced in this first chapter? Yeah. I mean, to me, the story was always about two women subverting the model minority myth, which is kind of strange to say because there is a lot of plot in the novel. You know, obviously there's a counterfeit handbag crime ring and there are people manipulating each other and the police catch on to what they're doing. So there's all this plot. I don't know how to say this in a way that doesn't. Do you have suggestions? Should I just say? You know, I think, well, yeah, I think what's really exciting about this novel is that you think the plot is one thing. Mm -hmm. in the first half. Mm -hmm. And then in the second half, the main question reveals itself to be something very different. Mm. And that's okay. That's what yeah. is so exciting about the read. In the first half, you really think what the question is, how do they get caught? Right. Mm -hmm. right? She's confessing to a detective in the, in the first chapter. But then in the second half, it sort of flips the script on you and you have a whole new host of questions. And then that's what's driving the reader to the end. No, oh, I love that. I think that's Just great that. stories do that. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, it's teamwork, right? It's always teamwork. Yeah. <laughs> do you think that that switch happens at a pretty clear midpoint or is it just somewhere in the middle we change directions? 
I think it's a little past the midpoint. It's um, definitely past the midpoint numerically, but I was thinking of it as the midpoint. I just had to get the story in before we shift, you know, before the ground shifts. Mm-hmm. And so it ended up kind of pushing it to maybe two thirds. So it's so interesting that you start with us thinking, what is the crime or how did they get caught with the crime? Because the detective, it hooks us in enough to read forward. Then with the plot itself and the scene, and of course, we'll look at this in scene structure, it does very much seem centered in this relationship. The third question we like to look at is point of view. The question is, who is telling the story? Well, I think in that case, it's very clear. It's Ava telling the story. Confessions are really interesting, kind of an interesting subgenre of the first person point of view story, I think, because it's so clear who's being addressed, who the reader is supposed to be in this situation. And then also the protagonist, Ava's motives and goals are also incredibly clear in a confession. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything to add to that, Jessica? Well, I mean, I think the point of view is one of the most interesting things about this novel and that, you know, and we were talking about this yesterday, Kirsten, and that sometimes point of view is just seen as like checking a box on a checklist. Mm -hmm. But It's really a device here and it's almost, it's a very playful use of perspective in that the reader goes in expecting one thing, which we've talked about, Ava's confessing to the detective. And so your point of view is delivered through this, what is in essence a monologue, even though Kirsten does build it into scenes, but essentially Ava is telling all of this, speaking it to the detective. So you can almost imagine it like if you were watching a TV show. You know, that scene in the confession room with the detectives across the table. Mm-hmm. And then she flips that around the midpoint and brings in Winnie's perspective. Mm-hmm. And it sort of calls him to question everything that came before in the confession. That's what I think is so interesting, because when you are having these close POVs, you're limited to what that character is experiencing. And there's always two sides to every story. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. <laughs> or more. Or more. <laughs> That's true. I mean, and that's what makes it so curious because it seems like this this novel, at least, couldn't be written in any other point of view. You couldn't just check off the box. It had to be this POV for it to work, right? Yeah. I mean, I will say I tried it in a couple different ways. You know, so obviously the confession was first person. It had to be. I did try Winnie's section in first person. I had Winnie's section first person addressed to somebody else. I had it third person, very distant before settling on this version, which is close third, mm-hmm. not super close, but close enough. And so, yes, I mean, trial and error got me to this exact point of view. Mm-hmm. I love that you did trial and error. I think that a, a lot of writers feel nervous about their point of view choice and, I, and a good exercise is try it a different way. You know? yeah. yeah. I mean, as a, as a reader and as an editor, I think one of my favorite sources of tension is through perspective. If you think about, you know, dramas we like to watch on television, the idea that we can never fully understand what's happening. We're informed by our own wants and needs and the tension that is created through that. So if you can sort of illuminate that on the page through using different perspectives or what Kirsten is doing here by playing with perspective, it allows you to create tension in a really organic, relatable way. And you don't need so much plot if you can utilize tension around point of view. Oh, That's- I agree so much with that. I mean, one of the things, uh, and Jessica and I had this code word where we would call it the kind of gone girl twist. A gone girl twist. Yes, <laughs> we, which is kind of because gone girl does it so well. But I think that one thing that I learned from gone girl 
was that I wanted the twist to be more than just surprise. Like it had to have thematic meaning, you know, like it had to be a part of the story. And it couldn't just be like, oh, my God, I didn't see that coming because there's so much more going on in, in this book. And I think that twist not only creates surprise, but also brings out the important themes of the book. Yeah, I think it's really easy, actually, for writers, especially when you're writing in the sort of mystery, thriller, suspense genre to fall into the trap of like a cheap twist. And that was definitely something, I mean, from the very beginning when I read Counterfeit on Submission, the twist was there. It just wasn't fully fleshed out. But from the very beginning, from that first read, I understood the purpose and the meaning of it. And I loved it. It was more a matter of, okay, now how do we pull this off on the page? And that was what we really worked on together in editorial. That's really interesting. So the twist was there, and then it was about figuring out strategies that could help it pull off in the best way that can be pulled off, it sounds like. For the reader, yeah. For the reader. And the point of view you think is essential to that successfully doing it. Yeah. Everything is point in this book. (laughs) Yeah, everything is point of view. The whole twist is point of view, yeah. Which, of course, is why, I mean, if you really love POV, Jessica, that would appeal to you right away, it seems like. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I, I love a good twist. Mm-hmm. doesn't. But I actually have read quite a lot of more genre novels on submission. And the twist is like, oh, they were drunk the whole time or yeah. they lo- lost their memory. And those are not the kind of twists that I sure. like. Um, sure. Because those, to me, feel a little cheap or familiar. Yeah. When you're being able to identify what really makes a great twist, do you think that there are any strategies that writers can try in order to make sure they're not falling into a cliche twist? Well, I think one is read widely. Like, I mean, we used Gone Girl as a reference. If you want to write a book within that space, read others, see what the twist people are using and try to do something fresh with it. Perspective, for instance, is a really interesting way to do that. I also think, you know, the the unreliable narrator can be another thing that is very commonly used. But like, you know, you have the very familiar, like something like Woman in the Window, where it's like she's popping pills and lost sense of reality. And that's very familiar. We've seen it done. I think it's familiarizing yourself with what has been done before you and then trying to freshen it up or take it in a new direction. For instance, what Kirsten was doing, not that she was writing a, a suspense novel like those, but she was using this twist to kind of upend the reader's expectations about who Ava is as a character. Mm-hmm. And that's where it ties into this idea about, you know, questioning the, the model minority. Yeah. And so she brought the twist into a much larger, meaningful conversation that I think also plays into the reader's perhaps unconscious bias or, you know, kind of cultural expectations about who Ava is, what they would expect from a woman like her. And so it make all of a sudden the reading experience becomes really active. You're not passively engaging anymore. You're realizing, oh my goodness, the writer pulled the rug out from under me. And that's a really, I think, fun feeling to have while reading fiction. Yeah, Kirsten, I love that you did that. I love when stories do that because it plays in, even if you don't understand that you have this unconscious bias, all of a sudden it's in your face when you make the <laughs> assumptions, right? It's like, oh my gosh, like this is, and it does create that bigger conversation that I think yeah. is important to hear. Yeah, and I mean, those are the kinds of twists, like Jessica said, those are the kinds of twists I like to read as well. If the twist can connect to a larger theme or message of the book, those are always the most satisfying to me. The ones that I am less satisfied with are when you find out that the character was a sociopath and lying the entire time. That to me is surprising, but less interesting. 
It's like the, it was all happening in a snow globe. <laughs> you know? And then it was in the one I'm just like, ugh, no. <laughs> Those are the ones that probably don't get published. No, I think right. they do. <laughs> I mean, I think some, write, some readers like, you know, some readers Absolutely. want the surprise, just like mm-hmm. to be yeah. stunned. And the more surprising, the better. But it's never been my personal taste. Yeah, I would think more within the pure genre category. Absolutely. There are readers who, who want that. It's just not necessarily what I like to read or publish or what, you know, Kirsten likes to write. Okay, really cool. I love those points. Thank you for all that. Question number four is my favorite question because it deals with character. And I'm always really interested in characters. And we've mentioned characters quite a bit. So the question for counterfeit in this first chapter, which character should they care about the most? Oh, well, oh. in the first chapter, <laughs> the first chapter, I think that that's the allure of first person is you're immediately aligned with Ava. And then on top of that, Ava's confessing. And so she she has already set out to make herself really likable and alluring to this detective. Mm-hmm. And so that is the reason why the reader is kind of forced into the position of being the detective and the reader are extremely aligned in the first half of the book. And that's by design. Right. And she's really relatable. She's a, a new mom, her husband's working all the time. She's overwhelmed with her toddler son. She feels alone. She lost her mother. Like there's so many points of connection, I think, for all different types of readers to feel as if they understand how she's feeling in that first chapter. Yeah, I would agree with that as a reader, I found you did a fantastic job. You both did such a fantastic job and making sure that Ava was sympathetic and naturally because the first point person you're automatically going to be sympathetic because we're pulled close. But I also have a toddler. So it's it's one of those things where it's like you can see it and then losing her mom and losing a mom in general is going to be terrible, but it was a sudden death. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there was a lot of help with the mom then all since she just was gone. And it seems like she has been someone who has been playing safe. She has been trying to do the right thing or the good thing, if there is a definition of that. There's all those things. And then- what my favorite thing you did with this first chapter was you framed Winnie as this character that there were suspicions around in the fact that did she cheat with the SATs? It seems like Ava kind of expressed annoyance in the sense that she would ask her, she'd constantly need her help defining words, which I thought were interesting words that you pulled out like doppelganger. That was clever. You know, things like that. But then Winnie is completely sympathetic because despite it seems like her first intention for calling her is just about the liver transfer for mm-hmm. basically needing her husband, essentially. She then asks her personal questions about Ava and then is so good at helping with Henry. And now you have someone who took the time, you know, a lot of people who are just in their own business would just be thinking annoying toddler. And she starts singing to him in Chinese, which is what Ava was hoping her mom would be able to do for Henry. So it's just like super, super clever. And I was like, oh my gosh, because you you let us know that there were things to be concerned about with Winnie, but ultimately like the root of her is sympathetic and good. For me personally, I was like, okay, I, I understand the story's protagonist here is Ava and she's the one that I'm on board with, but I'm very interested in Winnie and to see what's mm-hmm. going to happen with this character. Yeah, I think there's also an underlayer in that first chapter around Winnie of presenting her as a master manipulator, Mm -hmm. as if she's manipulating Ava from that very first meeting through her son. Yep. But then what's really fun is that as you progress through the novel, you have to think who's really the master manipulator here. Is it Ava or is it Winnie? Mm -hmm. And that's really cool because 
in chapter four, chapter three or chapter four, we see the first interaction with the counterfeit purses Mm -hmm. and that manipulation comes into play there. It's interesting that you set it up in chapter one already, and then it starts to grow bigger and more in her face as the actual action of the crime starts to come into play. That's really Mm -hmm. cool. Super smart. Question number five deals with setting. And the question is, where and when does the story take place? Uh, Yeah, so most of it takes place in contemporary San Francisco. And I think that setting is essential to the story in many ways. I mean, a lot of this book is about consumerism and the kind of complexity of living in a late stage capitalist society. And San Francisco is kind of a microcosm of all the problems that come with that, just because there's extreme wealth inequality. There are a a large number of very young people who made a lot of money very quickly in tech. Like, you know, it has this gold rush culture that has kind of stuck with it since its inception. And I think that was, that setting played a big part in this book. Mm -hmm. Do you think that with the setting, did you ever imagine it being anywhere else? Or was it always going to be here? It was always going to be San Francisco. I mean, I, I think that, um, yeah, it's interesting. There, it was always going to be San Francisco and there were always going to be Stanford grads. I think there's just something about the Bay Area culture that really lends itself to this kind of conversation. Great. And now we're going to move on to question number six. Question number six deals with the core emotion. So we're turning it to the reader here. And the question is, how should the reader feel about what's happening? I think this reader should start to feel very sympathetic to Ava, but also a tiny bit suspicious. I was going to say suspicious. (laughs) And in what way? That there are things that Ava seems to be saying that it's almost like she's protesting too much the way that she kind of downplays her child's behavior in a very, you know, like we could see her child like having a tantrum on the sidewalk. And she's like, oh, no, 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 it's a phase. It's a Like all of that stuff should be raising suspicions. In the reader's mind. And I think what's interesting about writing Ava's chapters is that we later find out that, you know, you you later wonder how much of those details were intentionally relayed and Mm -hmm. how much were her pouring her heart out in a genuine way. Yeah, especially when she addresses the detective again, when Henry comes on and she makes some sort of comment about his tantrums and then just stop the narrative and turn to the detective and be like, I know that you're going to think that I'm heartless, but, you know, not those exact words, but I know you're going to think that I'm heartless, but you didn't understand. It was all the time at that time. It's very it's interesting. She's in this place of telling the story, but then defending. So what does she have to defend? So much going on there. Really great layers. Question number seven. So this is the last question, the big picture questions, and this deals with the all important stakes of the novel. Why should the reader care about what happens next? What do you think the stakes are and why should they care? It's interesting because we don't actually know what kind of trouble Ava is in. And so I don't know how high the stakes feel just from that first chapter, but we know that this is someone, a highly successful, highly educated person from a comfortable background who is in trouble. And so maybe that in of itself is the stakes because you would not expect somebody like her to be in this position. Mm-hmm. Did you have anything to add to that, Jessica? Yeah, I mean, stakes are so important. I constantly find myself using that word when working on edits. And I think in this first chapter, I mean, I think Kirsten's right, and that's the how high the stakes are is not fully established, but that's sort of the fun of the discovery of this novel and the way it unfolds. And if you've written something that's very sharp and fun to read, especially in chapter one, that hooks the reader in the way counterfeit does, Mm -hmm. lays some of the groundwork for setting up the stakes. 
I think you can rest assured that the reader will continue on to chapter two, chapter three, where you might potentially reveal the actual height of the stakes. Mm-hmm. I've talked about this on the podcast before. I really like James Scott Bell frames it as three whiff of death stakes, physical, psychological, and professional. And I see a combination of stakes going on in that first chapter because we know that she's talking to a detective. I feel like maybe it's professional stakes in some way. You know, she's in trouble for doing something. What's that going to deal with? Psychological stakes are without a doubt on the table for me in this. And so, you know, like that idea of we don't understand if we're being manipulated or not being manipulated, but something is going on within her, especially when she discusses at the very end of the chapter, she kind of justifies, well, she addresses the elephant in the room. Why would she become friends with Winnie after 20 years? And it's when she really turns to the detective. And I thought that was just so brilliant how you did that because you kept us focused and hooked based on the plot of the interaction between the friends. But then you summed it up with this idea of this is why I became friends. And she starts to go in this justification when she's basically saying, you don't understand, like she was so good at taking care of Henry and I just hadn't slept in days. And it just was like, so, (laughs) you know, but it's like, it's a legit reason, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It makes me think of uh, the office episode where Pam hasn't slept in Dwight. (laughs) It's like, it's it's just like, it's, it's funny, right? You do think about it. There's humor and satire in it. So I, I really just thought that you did a great job at pulling us in on understanding how stakes and emotion were connected. You know, the more times I read it, I've mentioned this before, just the layers became more and more evident at how purposeful the sentences were. So bravo, I loved it. Well, there's also the, um, when I think about stakes where it's like the slippery slope stakes, which might actually be some of my favorite, like Mm -hmm. one decision leads to another, what leads to another. And all of a sudden this person's entire world is exploded and maybe they're talking to a detective. And I would always joke with Kirsten that her book was like, you know, female breaking bad (laughs) or like starting with Ava. She's a good person, rule follower. And then, you know, one decision like, oh, her credit cards declined Mm -hmm. leads to, you know, the counterfeit handbag ring. So those might be some of my actual favorite because it makes it feel really, um, I think, relatable for everyday people as to how you could become a criminal. Absolutely. I love that you said it was the female version of Breaking Bad because that's exactly what I thought of <laughs> when I was reading it because that's what happens to Walter White. He does this for a genuine reason and then it just totally torpedoes into this disaster. But then, but then he realizes he likes the power. Mm-hmm. which I think is also what we have happening in Counterclip. Mm-hmm. Well, for someone who's been good their whole life and has been given the shorthand most of their life, yeah. You yeah, likes what it to, to like. feel powerful. Mm-hmm. And that, again, is relatable, right? Like, I think every person at some point in their life has felt, oh, this is a side of me I didn't realize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, that's tackling the big picture. So now I would like to zero in on the scene structure and helping writers just understand why the first chapter in Counterfeit does such a fantastic job at hooking us and grounding us in like, what is the literal action of what's actually happening here on the page? But what is it doing also that speaks to the story itself? And why would we want to read on into chapter two? Or why do we want to purchase the book? Which all of you should do, by the way, if you're a listener out there. Let's go ahead and look at that. Now, I'm certified in story grid editing, which is a type of methodology. I also think that there's a lot of ways to edit and that you should never just lock yourself into one way of editing. So I'm excited to to talk about how you came about this. But I 
tend to lean towards the five commandments. So I'm just looking for things like inciting incident. When I'm looking at structure, I'm thinking about what is the main thing in the scene that causes some sort of dilemma or crisis decision? What ultimately would you consider the climax of the story? And then what is the resolution of that? I'm framing questions around there, but if you have some other things to say or take it another way, awesome. I'd love to hear your viewpoints on it. Before starting with scene structure, I do like to identify what I think the character wants in the scene. And I'm curious, what do you think is Ava's want or goal in the scene? And how do you think that carries us through the structure? I always have a hard time talking about this because of the many layers of the book, because we know she is confessing. And so, you know, on the purest kind of most basic level, she is wanting to convince a detective of her story. She wants to get away with it. <laughs> right. And then, but then you have like, what is she saying? Mm -hmm. You know, so like if you look into the story that she has spun, what she wants is some peace from her child. You know, she wants her, her husband her, to be around more. She wants her husband to be around more. She's feeling lonely. She misses her mom. Yeah. When I was looking at it and trying to decide, I saw want, as with the detective, I want to get away with this. But that probably spoke to the big picture. And then I was trying to think, what is she actually trying to do in the scene itself and how does some sort of inciting incident spark that? So for me, for an inciting incident, something like a person or a, co a coincidence basically kickstarts the action. For me, that was probably when Winnie calls her. Would you agree with that? Like Winnie? Oh, yeah. Probably, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think of it as like a classic, like stranger comes to town trope, you know, <laughs> like especially when I was thinking about her walking into that coffee shop and everybody turning and being like, who's that? And that to me was like, Stranger comes to town. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. And there's also Ava wants a sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, she has this, what, is it a Stanford law degree that she's not using anymore? She's a new mom. You know, she's feeling like her, she lost her mom, like she's questioning all of her choices and what she's doing with her life because she's sort of stuck at home with a toddler. And Winnie comes in and offers her a sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. Do you think then her want could be a sense of purpose in Winnie's call opportunity to get together is attractive to her because it gives her a chance to get out of her funk or her norm of what her life is? Essentially, at the end of the chapter, when okay. we see the connection that I think initially she kind of goes out of obligation or even like a yeah. kind of strange curiosity because mm -hmm. it's been so long. And then eventually by the end of the chapter, you know, she's bought into. Yeah. I'm just pulling up. There's a line somewhere where she says, I too was quite certain Winnie had, where is it? Hold on. Oh, at the very end. Yeah. Yes. She talks about why she saw her and she basically, I'm not going to find it right off the top of my head, but I know that basically what she talks about, she says that she admits that she was curious, right? Because it had been so many years. She's curious as to what had happened to Winnie because Winnie disappears from her life quickly. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea of, did you, did you make up your father's stroke or... Did she, what happened here? She does like just disappear. And even like, her aunt thanks her, Winnie's aunt thanks her, but when, she never hears from Winnie again. But then she also says like why she kept her around was because she was so good with Henry. I thought that that was really curious. We had this idea starting off with the inciting incident being Winnie calling. And this is addressed from what I'm hearing. This is addressing her sense of purpose or her curiosity. So it, this is what is moving us forward. A lot happens when she starts to interact with Winnie in the coffee shop. We understand that things like the purpose of why Winnie called her or, you know, the, what we think is the purpose, but it's this purpose of she needs her husband's help because she has a friend who needs a li liver transfer. We need our liver transplant. We need something with that. 
And then she turns it into conversation about now tell me about you. Do you think that there's any moment in the scene that helps turn the attention from here's a conversation with this woman that we haven't seen in a long time to here's actually what this scene is about and why this interaction becomes so interesting. But in other words, like, is there a main conflict, I think, that starts to spark that helps change the direction of we're having a conversation to this is now becoming something bigger in this scene? Well, isn't there a line where she says, at the time, I didn't think anything of how she how she tracked me down. She mentioned she found me on the Stanford listserv. But then later you realize when he wouldn't have been on the Stanford listserv because she didn't graduate. And so it's almost as if it, when he masterminded it from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So there's a layer there that Ava sort of acknowledges to the detective, like, I was foolish to believe this. But now looking back, I realize she must have been like looking into me or manipulating me. From the yeah. Beginning. Yeah. And she says, I think she says, I can't remember I took this line out, but I think she says she had. Her, yes, she did. She had in hindsight, she had her private investigator track me down. And that's mm-hmm. on the second page. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That was interesting. On page know. two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, yes. That line's not a spoiler. It is there, right? It, yeah. 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 It went from this conversational approach and then all of a sudden Henry comes on stage. And when Henry comes on stage, this gives like Winnie this opportunity to sing to him. Because even the caregiver is not being able to calm him down. And it felt like Ava's going to have to step out of this. But then when he sings to him and gives him the charm, which ends mm-hmm. up being a huge tip to where this is going to go. <laughs> so it was so interesting because when I look at scenes, I like to ask myself, is there some sort of dilemma or crisis that the character experiences, the, the central character in the scene? Do they have to make some sort of big decision in that scene, whether or not, you know, it doesn't have to always be guns a blazing. This is a life or death decision, right? But some sort of decision that helps move the plot forward and develops the character because through the character's decision, we start to define what type of person that character is. Do you think there's any main question in the scene that asks that, that we could ask? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I do think of that moment that, uh, you know, I, it was essential to me that Henry made an appearance because I think that that, that Henry is kind of, Henry kind of is an emblem of the crisis moment that Ava is in or that Ava presents herself as being in in that first chapter. And so she bursting onto the scene and erupting into tears is the biggest problem that Ava is dealing with. And so, you know, if the, her intention in this chapter is to explain the mystery of why it is that she and Winnie reconnected and why she foolishly let Winnie re- into her life, that's the sympathetic answer that yeah. everyone can relate to. So you think that it's when Henry comes on stage or when, yeah. And then and he, then when Ava invites Winnie into her home. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was so interesting because it's, she did go from, it seemed like, all right, I'm going to have this interaction with Winnie just out of curiosity, but then I'm going to peace out of here. And then it was like, she's inviting her to her home, which is a much more intimate setting than a coffee shop. Although coffee shops are fun, especially since like, this is where it, they, we get into the mom and like what happened to her mom and things like that. So interesting that she started to let her in more. Do you, so you think the crisis probably deals along the lines of something like, should I let winning more into my life or not? Is that the question? Yeah. I mean, I think in that first chapter, if that didn't happen, she would have been like, great. And then like left and texted her friends and been like, I saw Winnie. She looks completely different. And that's the end of the story. Sure. And so, you know, like it's because she invites her into her home and sees her interact with her child and realizes how lonely she is. That's why 
they keep hanging out. And that initial interaction probably is when Winnie sings to him and gives him the charm. All right. So then I like to look at if there is a crisis and if the crisis happens because of some sort of big action or revelation that changed and moved the scene forward, then the climax of that scene is based on how did they answer. So it sounds like the climax would be she invites her into her home. And then we talk about what is the resolution of the scene. So because of this, how has the plot moved forward or how has the character been developed? And I love that you had that little extra bit. And I'm curious why you have a page break because you do have this part where basically it's Winnie interacting with her in the home and then you have a page break and it goes into her reflection, her processing why she started to rejuvenate that friendship with Winnie. So I'd love to know, why did you decide to do the page break? Was it always there? Is that something that came out through discussion with Jessica? And also, what is the resolution for this scene and how does it carry us forward into chapter two? Yeah, so the page break was always there. I mean, so we get we end the scene, which is after she comes and gives him the keychain and she leaves and then Ava looks up at how much the keychain costs and that's mm-hmm. the end of that scene. And then we go into some summary and then we go into flashback, which is when we hear of their time at Stanford. And I thought that was essential to get into the first chapter to explain this really weird dynamic that we've kind of already that we've kind of seen in that in those first opening pages where she comes in and Ava's like scrutinizing the way she looks and like scrutinizing her clothes. Like it's a weird way to look at someone mm-hmm. and the details that she picks out are really weird. Like she, you know, mm-hmm. her eyes have been surgically enhanced. Her hair reaches her nipples like that. There's something off about that description. And so I thought I needed to give a little bit of context around that. And then the backstory, which is when we find out that that Ava, that Winnie rather, left Stanford in this cloud of suspicion. I think that that was important to the character because because it's kind of a low stakes it's kind of a low stakes mistake. I mean, obviously it changed her life. She had to lose Stanford. She didn't kill someone. She did, you know, it would be a very different story if the backstory was she suspicious, she suspected of murder or mm-hmm. she suspected of hurting somebody. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was kind of a purposefully, you know, the reason I landed on this cloud of suspicion around cheating for your SATs is because it's kind of a crime that everybody can wrap their mind of around. We've seen now that so many people do some version of this. And so I was looking for that kind of perfect type of backstory. Mm-hmm. And then it's all about, it brings in the question of like, well, some people get caught and others don't, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like when you get caught, that's only when people start talking about it. And also she was never charged. She right. left, but you know, it's not even clear that she did. She, her father had a stroke and she had to leave. So there's just so much confusion around that. Yeah. You brought up backstory and I'd love to add, you know, something that I was taking notes on because we've, that's the scene structure. So we understand what moves the plot forward, how the characters developed through the plot. We understand the big picture now. And one thing that I thought was marvelously done in this first chapter was weaving backstory and backstory that was purposeful and added to the context that was actually happening versus backstory that would be info dumping. And I think that's something that writers really struggle with. I'm going to test that they do really struggle with that. Yes. <laughs> yes. How did you start making those decisions together? And I just, I just really think it's an amazing example of purposeful backstory. So what are some tips to help writers who are really struggling with this? I mean, I think one thing I've learned is that you don't have to tell a character's entire history. Like this one thing about Winnie, which is basically the only thing we know about her time at Stanford is that she left in suspicion. We know she had pretty good grades and then we know she left in suspicion. But that it's kind of like that evokes an idea of her that is more powerful than me saying, you know, her first month she did this, her second month she did this. And so I think Mm -hmm. it's well-chosen 
anecdote or the well-chosen scene that is much more important than quantity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you were choosing what was carrying forward, it sounds like the main thing you were thinking about was character development and also what was going to impact on the plot. I've always found it really interesting because I think why, I mean, there are many reasons why you ladies did such an amazing job on this, but the idea of basically like when you're choosing that backstory, you almost have to know how it ends in order to figure out what's purposeful and what stays and what goes, right? I I think you need to know the theme of the story. And to me, you know, a big part of the theme is people stereotyping each other. And the reason that everybody thinks Winnie cheated is because she's from China. Mm -hmm. And there is, you know, there have been times in the past where Chinese students have done certain things and everybody has a perception of how the Chinese government runs things in China. And so I knew that that was the theme. And so I thought, you know, what is a thematic interesting crime for her to be maybe involved with and maybe not. And do you think that you need to know your theme from the first draft or is that something that comes through multiple drafts? I mean, you'd be very lucky if you did, I think. (laughs) You would be very lucky if you did. I, you know, I think at least from the experience I've had working with writers of all different types of experience, you know, whether it's their first book or, you know, their second or their third book, or their fourth book is that I feel like a lot of times writers are potentially writing towards an idea or an Mm -hmm. interest, but they don't necessarily know what the purpose of the story is, what the core central theme is, and that can slowly emerge over time. And I mean, over time as in maybe, I mean, I think when Kirsten's book came to me, absolutely a central theme was clear, but I have acquired other novels where I had to almost pull it out of the writer's head. Like I knew that they knew it and we were sort of circling around it and including all of these details that we didn't need, right? That That's what we're sort of talking about here. So maybe they had already gone through five drafts for, before the time. And then the one thing that I try to do is help them focus it in. What do we need? Do we need this? Do we need this? Like constantly just like barking up their manuscript. Why do we need this? And through that sort of articulation, I think to the editor, can be really clarifying, but you don't necessarily need an editor to do that. So you, mm-hmm. one thing that you could do is just take a little time away from your manuscript. Maybe you, you know, put it in a drawer for a month and then go back to it and you'll see it with much fresher eyes. Just ask yourself, mm-hmm. why do I need this? How is it serving the story? How does it, is this the best example I could use to both further up the stakes, further the plot, further develop the character? Like, Is it performing multiple functions for me? But I think essential, is it essential, is a very important question to be asking yourself. And other readers can help you kind of discover that as well. But Mm. I would think for the most part, at least the writers that I have worked with, sort of discover the central theme as they're going along. And I think that's perfectly okay and normal and... You know, you'll sort of layer things in and then perhaps at the end realize a part of me knew all along. I just had to figure it out. I love that you're saying that. We are at the top of the hour, so I do want to wrap up the conversation and I appreciate everything that you have both shared. It's invaluable and I just really appreciate it. I have one last question for you as kind of a mark to, I know what writers struggle with. When they're going through their drafts, it's never done in one draft, right? It takes a lot of drafts to go through this. And I would just love to hear your advice for writers who are going through draft three, five, eight, whatever draft they're on. How can you push through those drafts to start to find the root of what this story really is while also 
holding on to the purpose of why you started writing it. You're absolutely right. Draft. I mean, I've written 10 to 15 drafts for every single book that I've written. Start to finish, I start with a blank Word document, at least for the first 10 drafts. And then maybe the last five, I can kind of move stuff around. But, you know, I kind of think of that as a comfort. I think I don't have to solve everything in one draft because I can't. And I often will think of one to three big things that I can focus on for each draft. And that is the only thing I focus on in that draft. And yes, you're always improving language. You're always deepening character as you go. But, you know, I try not to do too much because I understand that my capacities are limited. But what a beautiful thing, you know, like I've always said to myself, you know, so-and-so is a genius and they can do it in five drafts. But what a beautiful thing that I can do it in 15. And in the Mm -hmm. end, the reader only sees the book, right? They don't, they don't know how many drafts went into it. And so what a wonderful thing that I too can publish a book like this genius. I think some really good advice I've, you know, heard from other writers and given to writers is give yourself permission to write some really bad first drafts. And I love that permission because it's inevitable, right? So we need to get it out. There are discovery drafts and then polishing and polishing is where the beauty comes in from. So I love that perspective, Kirsten, the idea of what a beautiful thing, because it is beautiful and you grow as a writer and this story is fantastic. And I hope everyone purchases a copy for their bookshelf and spreads the news of how great it is. Thank you again for your time and analysis of the scene and of the big picture. I think that understanding this helps writers ground themselves in what they're looking for. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation on Lit Match. You can learn more about what makes a great first chapter and how to analyze the big and small picture of counterfeit in the show notes. I'm so grateful to have had the privilege of analyzing counterfeit with Kirsten and Jessica, and I hope that you got as much writing and editing advice out of this discussion as I did. On a personal note, I've had several people reach out to me to share how they're enjoying the show, as well as offer feedback on ways that I can improve it. I want to take this time to express my gratitude and say thank you so much to those writers. It's because of you that I can make the show the best it can be with a goal of making it an enjoyable source of writing and editing advice, as well as a constant companion that makes the literary agent research process resourceful and fun. If you're enjoying Lit Match or have any suggestions for the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com or visit my website, www.abigailkperry.com, and I'll do my best to answer you. If you want to support Lint Match, I'd really appreciate that. You can do so by rating and reviewing the show, and of course, passing it on to your fellow writers. Until next time, happy writing to everyone who is tackling their manuscript. If you're in the query process, continue to persevere. Remember that it only takes one yes, and I hope that Lint Match not only helps you write a manuscript, that gives you the best shot at hooking a literary agent, but also helps you find the best literary agent for your business and writing career. Please keep me posted in your writing and publishing journey. I genuinely want to support you, and I can't wait to celebrate your book when it comes out.